This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, sometimes I like to have just like a cool, unscripted, casual conversation at the beginning of these episodes. Uh, we've watched 10 movies already from the year 1971. Oh, well. And I just want to check in with you. Like, what what are you feeling about the year 1971 after 10 films? Well, it's clear it was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, and a galaxy far, even... far away. Yeah. So, number one, I think we talk about this every episode. It's been an interesting, it's been an interesting exercise to contextualize life in 1971. So, socioeconomic, race, all these themes. Uh, I mean, we're in 2021, so we take a lot of this stuff for granted. The uh, filmmaking new wave of American cinema, mm-hmm. it's been challenging, you know. We've had some really good conversations. Wait, so challenging but, in what way? Well, you know, the idea that gratuitous nudity and violence was not normalized yet. Mm, sure. Yeah, <laughs> and it was very, it was far, very new in, in movies at that time. Right, and how far they're intentionally pushing it just to see what would happen. And then, of course, what happens is we get a new code. But still, you know, it's uh, it feels like, I mean, we didn't do 69 or 70, but it really feels like they're uh, they're kind of laughing. They're kind of laughing while they're doing it. Right. It's a, it's a little egregious. Yeah. I mean, I think, of course, we've intentionally gone after certain types of films. We have we had there's a couple of black exploitation films at the beginning. We've been going through a lot of the Academy Award nominated films over the last few weeks. Uh, some like B movie science fiction films. Uh, but of those ten, like I mean. I would love to know if there was anyone in 1971 who actually went to the theater, watched all 10 of the movies that we have talked about here already, Uh, because it really feels like when you start watching only films from a specific year, you can kind of feel the things that people are struggling with of like identity of their place in the world of uh, stuff that was going on in the news about the fear of existential threats. Like uh, there, there is this through line of like, yeah, I can understand why this film was made in the early seventies because you're probably like freaking out about this kind of stuff. Yeah. The only person I can think of are, uh, your hero <laughs> and, uh, that crabby woman. What's the critic that we've been quoting a lot? Oh, uh, Pauline uh, Kale. Pauline Kale. Yeah. Actually, I just read something about a relationship with this movie. Yes, Anyways, yes, she um, is kind of related to this movie in a weird way. In a weird way. Um, not that we're scripting this and know what movie we're about to watch in this deep and rich fiction we've created <laughs> right, for ourselves. Right, right. Uh, yeah, you, the other thing, you know, that I've been thinking about actually in anticipation of today's filming is uh, I kind of want to go back at the end of this season and reassess some of the scores. Um, I have a feeling that the uh, acclimatization towards 1971, especially by the end when we've done more uh, like flimsier and fun pieces, comedies, I think it's going to change the context in which we view some of these hard hitting. I mean, you know, you, the machine threw uh, all the big ones at us first just to get the season going. So yeah, once we watch some of the more, I mean, I don't know, what's the right way to put it? less well like popular, they're, they're not like awarded? yeah they're not those award-winning right. films right they're challenging films right. yeah they're, we'll they're probably see a lot they're going to veer more into entertainment than they are for like you know mental nourishment let's put it that way <laughs> for stimulation yeah. yeah maybe we'll come back and say you know this is a much more important powerful film than i gave it credit for the first time i watched it uh, yeah i mean when you start to uh, throw up with like well, how do I compare the French connection with Willy Wonka? Then you'll be like, well, <laughs> let's make some comparisons here. <laughs> it sounds like the beginnings of a book, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> From the French connection to Willy Wonka. What a Can weird three-way that would be. How many love triangles have you been a part of? Um, I mean, I've been part of a few. Um, all of them acute. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine.
almost get it because it's it's a triangle Did joke. You, you need the sound. <laughs> this is a, a single slide whistle. Actually, would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Calendar versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. I just thought I would come back. I should have called you obtuse. And I'm the machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the film Sunday, Bloody Sunday. We're free to do what we want. Other people often do what they don't want to do at all. A new film from the Academy Award-winning director of Midnight Cowboy. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Uh, as we do every week, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl, YYC, and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Uh, also, Dave, I think we need to celebrate something. This episode, the machine has let me know, this episode is episode 69. Ooh. So congratulations, we've reached the sex number. Yay us, yay us. Why aren't we, why aren't we live streaming this? I don't know. Right? We should have been. The I, people... Well, I mean, the people need to see this. The, the, the true answer is because <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> the, 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 that's the real reason. Uh, but they can't handle the power of 69 episodes, Dave. Can't handle the truth. Are we going to go back to what year is that? 96? Dave, what's your history with gay cinema? Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I've got my, my degree just folded up somewhere here my, for my, uh, college, my college certificate. I have nothing. Well, what what is your? Can you recall the first time? Can you recall the first time in a movie where a, like a same sex relationship was showcased that wasn't like the butt of a joke? Mm, that was like the theme. It was like the theme, just like that's or what the like movie a, was about. A major. No, I don't know. I mean, in our generation, it's probably broke back, right? But I'm just trying to think. Before that, Bert Birdcage. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, Birdcage is probably mine. I'm trying to think if I saw anything yeah. before then. Everything I, else is implied. Like everybody knew. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like who the actors were, what they were meant to represent. But yeah, like overtly as a plot, not very frequently. Yeah. This is what I have kind of come to learn, which is that there's a long history of gay cinema. It's just, it was not being released into like the multiplexes, right? Stuff in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. You know, that was one of the things I commented on in 1999 that I was surprised by that was like, oh, there's actually a lot of gay content in 1999 that I just had not thought of or internalized mm -hmm. or remembered, I guess. Definitely, we have not seen a lot of that in 1971 no. thus far. A little bit of a, a head nod, I guess, in Shaft with the bartender. And Sweetback. And Sweetback, I guess, too. Yeah. But those are the only two movies that really have featured any type of what I would call gay content. Definitely not Nicholas and Alexander. No. Although, come on. With the with the with the suits that Nicholas was wearing. Come on. Yeah, very come very on. uh very polished, very polished beard. I mean he spent a lot of time yeah. on that thing. Yeah. Right? It wasn't just beers he was oiling, let me tell you that. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Russian bathhouses. There <laughs> That they were they were a thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Good. You two are slowly going mad, all according to my plan. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, I, 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 that's why I'm kind of very excited to go into this movie, only because I. That's really the only thing that I know about this movie is that it does feature some type of gay content. To be honest with you, though, until the machine last week told us that this is the movie we were going to watch. I have never heard of this movie in my entire life. So I'm... Yeah, me neither. Okay. So there's really have no history then with this movie whatsoever. No. I just, like we talked about at the uh, closing of the last episode, I only know this as a lyric to a U2 song. So right. uh, I've got no grounding whatsoever in any of this. So it'll be an exciting adventure. 
on our 69th episode. Yay. Well, <laughs> let's do that. Let's do this, Dave. Let's go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I'm just saying, Dave, it's not that awkward of a position when you get into it. You know what I mean? Well, it just doesn't bend that way. Oh, I mean, I think you're trying hard. Oh, sorry. The microphones are on. Uh, well, welcome everyone to the ad read section, the part that everyone loves in any podcast that they listen to. It's what I, I fast forward to it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I fast forward <laughs> through the rest of the podcast, only do this. I guess we should start off by me saying that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. I, this week, get to tell you that this episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival, running online from May 6th to 16th. So you have a lot of time to go and get those tickets. Uh, We've been talking about this over the last few weeks. But even though Northwest Fest can't happen in a movie theater this year, they've put together an outstanding lineup of some of the year's best docs. In fact, this year, there are a whopping 40 feature films plus 40 short films available for viewing to anyone in Alberta. This unfortunately means that Dave and I can't because we are floating across some nebula out in the far reaches of space. But you can. The things we do for this. You can do it. The sacrifices we make. Except for the people that are listening to this that aren't in Alberta. But the people who are can do this. This is your chance to stream some of the hottest new docs from Canada and abroad, many of which are Canadian, international, and even world premieres. All access streaming passes, ticket packs, and single tickets are available now at northwestfest.ca. Dave, what do you have for me this week? Well, uh, apparently we're also going to talk about... What are we going to do here? Oh, I see. I've got a message from the Calgary Foundation. This episode is actually brought to you as well by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. When you make a gift to the Calgary Foundation, it's a gift that keeps on giving. The Foundation's knowledgeable staff will provide advice on the community's most pressing needs, keeping your interests at heart and helping you give back in a way that is meaningful for you. Your contributions are invested in an endowment fund that provides a permanent source of funding, allowing you to make an impact now and forever. If you're a professional advisor creating a giving plan for a client, or a donor wanting to give back to the community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org to learn more. Or check out Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. Hey, we have all of those too. We have all of those too. Subscribe to both. Do it at the same time. You know, Dave, the last two weeks, you have been positive about the films that we've watched. You've actually liked the last two films that we've watched. So I'm curious, is the streak alive or has the streak stopped dead in its tracks? Give me what your thoughts are on Sunday Bloody Sunday. Oh, stop dead's unfair. I I don't know, Kyle. What was this movie about? Uh, I have I, an uh, answer to that, but uh, what do you think this movie is about, Dave? I'm going to be Socratic with you. What do you think this movie is about? Yeah, I don't know. What do you mean by asking me what I think this? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's uh, an interesting thing. I will say this: it it kept me in it, so I didn't want to leave. But it's very slow, and by the end, I had no idea. It's this slice of a daily life in a bit of a tryst where I didn't feel like I was engaged with any of the characters per se. And there's a little bit of weirdness. I mean, oh yeah, I think there's, there's a lot like of 10 year old smoking pot. Yeah. yeah it's weird a thing. animals, like a monkey that shows up in one scene for yeah. basically no reason. There's always a reason to have a monkey. What is it? Not a parakeet. What is that big? A toucan? Yeah, I think it's a toucan. Yeah. Toucan? Like why, why is there a toucan in this film? I'm pretty sure that all of these characters would have got some kind of gastrointestinal disease. There's no hygiene. It is, <laughs> it is disgu- it's disgusting how some of these people are living in this film. Uh, just in, yeah. just in filth, just in abject <laughs> filth. When we get to the context, I think there's more meaning behind it that I appreciated after. Yeah, so but in the watching of it, I... 
I felt lost. I th- yeah. Okay. So I, I think we have to pull back the curtain a little bit. I know that we have this deep, rich fiction that is part of this show. And I know that we just watched this movie together. But yeah. let's say we hadn't just watched this movie together. And in reality, you had just watched this mere like an hour or so ago. And for me, I watched it 10 days ago. Imagine that reality, Dave. It's, it's wild hard, it's to hard think to about. Comprehend. It's hard to comprehend. It's wild to think about. But if that were the case, I feel differently now after 10 days than I did and right mm-hmm. after I watched it. And I have become more positive to it, actually, after 10 days. Because... I have kept thinking about it and rolling things over my mind and scenes come back to me. So I personally feel that this is a movie that has more to say the more that you kind of engage with it. I will say this, though. Initial viewing right after I was like, I don't know. Like, I felt like really conflicted by it. It's like there's some stuff I like, some stuff I really didn't like. Um, but the more I've thought about it, the more I've read about it. It's like, OK, I, I see how these things are fitting together. And I think if I did a second watch to it. I think some things would click into it maybe more and I'd be even more positive towards it. I think I've, I've got on DVD (laughs) to it. Uh, That's another story we should tell at some time about how you even (laughs) got to watch this movie. But I think the performances are well done. I think that this movie actually is a lot about the absence of love rather than the breaking of love. I think that a lot of these people are in a relationship because it's easy, not because they're trying to have a long lasting thing i cannot blow past the fact that in the early 1970s the fact that two men kiss is pretty remarkable uh and is part of the reason why this film did, uh, a lot of the producers didn't want to make this movie in the first place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i will say this though there is one part that i hate with a capital h hate and it's the final minute like literally just the final minute of this movie. Oh, the fourth wall. Where he break? breaks the fourth wall. I think what it is the fuck was dumb that? and stupid. So weird. And there's not a reason why he couldn't have been saying that to some person in the scene. I mean, why say it at all? It's like having to get your face battered in right. with some concept. It's like I know. they knew that people were like, I don't know if I'm gonna know. So like, here's what this movie's really right. about. And, and I still and, don't. And it feels like yes, yeah, so I I wish they were to cut off that portion because I really <laughs> hated it. I think that fourth wall breaking can happen or can can be used effectively, but it has to be uh, pitched to the audience pretty early. Like I, I think, if, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like we're, within the first couple of minutes he breaks it. I'm like, okay, that's what this movie is. I'm totally down for the ride. But it's like doing, I don't know, The Godfather, and at the very end, The Godfather turns to the screen and be like, really, it's about family the entire time. It's like, <laughs> whoa, what is going on? Like, what is happening? Dominic Toretto shows up. No, I I think. Uh... You know what it's like? It's like after Usual Suspects, all the lazy crime writers would just throw a two-minute sequence at the end to right. just be like, oh, guess what? You got it all wrong, except it's not in the film. Right. That's how I felt. I, yeah, I was um, I actually want irritated. to, yeah, I really want to actually delve into that speech specifically uh, in a moment. But so I, I think that there's a lot to this. Again, I, I keep coming back to this term. Like this is not based on a novel or any previous work, really. But it does feel literary in a way where it's like there's things being put into here. It's not being explicit with certain things. And there's a lot of subtext going on. And I think that you need to kind of go back and, and, and really uh, sink your teeth into that a lot more. Anyway, so there, that's, that's my quick initial thoughts on it here, at least. I think that my rating I'm going to give to this at the end is going to seem way lower than how I'm going to talk about it for the rest of this episode. Mm. But that, that was my initial viewing. And like, this is kind of what I think I'm, I'm, I'm giving it. I like the intro. I have a feeling that at the end of the year, we're going to have to do a, a global one point bump. <laughs> right. It's like, like, yeah. every- it's like, let's bring all this up. <laughs> yeah. Just wait until I make you watch Million Dollar Duck. To fill in some backstory here, Sunday Bloody Sunday was released on July 1st, 1971. It is rated 7.0 on IMDb. Uh, It does not have a rating on Metacritic. But over on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, from 29 critics, it's rated at 86%. And from 2,500 plus users, it is at 71%. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. A lovely Criterion release, I've heard. Just let us stream it, Criterion. And fix your UI while you're (laughs) at it. Awful. Uh, But you cannot buy or rent this anywhere. In Canada, at least. Uh, Maybe you can elsewhere in the world. 
you know, for some other people, maybe the only way you got to watch this was from some sketchy Russian website that had a copy of it online. I'm not saying that's what I did, but I could have maybe done that. Or, or for other people, you prudently looked on the Calgary Library website and waited uh, for the DVD to be available so that you didn't infect your phone or give your personal right. information. But then to you did another lockdown and you couldn't actually go to the library anymore. Perhaps. <laughs> presumably. Maybe. Yeah. Presumably, pot potentially, it may have happened that the day I was supposed to pick it up, Alberta pulled its head out of its ass and locked the fucking city down. But you know what? I still got it in time. There we go. So... I win. So its budget was one and a half million pounds. I have no idea what this movie made. All I know is that it wasn't like a huge success. <laughs> but there, I couldn't find any information on how much movie it actually made. Uh, its plot description from IMDb is the emotional intricacies of a polyamorous relationship between young artist Bob and his two lovers, a lonely male doctor and a frustrated female office worker. Pretty succinct description of this Pretty, movie. Yep. Very literal. Good. It stars Peter Finch as Daniel Hirsch, Glenda Jackson as Alex Revel, and Murray Head as Bob Elkin. Anything you want to say about these actors, Dave? Glenda Jackson's pretty interesting. So she's she went to become a politician. Time. Is that yeah. yeah? Like so, she's got the triple crown. She's got two Oscars, uh, two Emmys, and like a Tony Award, wow. which is crazy. Um, so she's talent, and she's great in this film. Yep. And in 1992, because she's so politically active, she retires from acting and decides, you know, fuck you, Margaret Thatcher. We need more socialists, literally. Yeah. I mean, not literally, but uh, functionally. And she becomes a member of parliament and serves until 2015. Wow. Um, and just to put this in context, apparently on the day uh, Thatcher died, there was a memorial. She gave a speech still blaming Margaret Thatcher for the, for the ills of socialist uh, problems in that country. So she doesn't fuck around. Uh, so that's kind of cool. And Peter Finch is pretty interesting. Peter Finch, I mean, I was going to say, like, Peter Finch, the way I know him, which is, I think, how a lot of people know him, is as uh, as the guy from Network, right? Like, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. That That is how most people know Peter Finch. And the, the scary part is he, he died before he could get his Correct. Oscar for he that. He's one of uh, yeah. two people and possibly three. I mean, we've all watched the Oscars last Sunday, so... I, what? But but I I'm just having a a brain moment here. I don't remember. But as of right now, only two people have won posthumous Oscars. So well, we'll re-record re that <laughs> in a couple of weeks. Sure. I did find out, which I thought was interesting, that the uh, reason he got this was because the first actor who was cast uh, dropped out allegedly yeah. for scheduling. The second actor you kind of brought up didn't want to make out with another dude on screen, Correct. so they fired him. Peter Finch comes in and he's already kind of known as a good actor, but there is a, apparently he's got a bit of a reputation as like a womanizer and sort of a famous playboy actor. Sure. And I love that he's an actor and he reads this script and I mean, he plays the he's heck great. out of this role. He's great in this well, film. Well, I, I think yeah. what cannot be overstated is what's actually even different from other films that dealt with homosexuality or bisexuality in the late 60s, early 70s is that this is not something that they're struggling with. Like, no one in this movie is struggling because they're gay. They're struggling because they're in a relationship, but they're not struggling because they're gay. And that seems weird. And I know it sounds so weird, but that does seem kind of revolutionary. Even today, so many films that feature anyone on the LGBTQIA spectrum is like they're struggling with that identity. And this is just like, yeah, that's who I am. And then we're going to do this. Uh, the kiss that does happen in this film, apparently the camera operator was making disparaging remarks he didn't want to be there but yeah so like even crew were like uh we're not cool with this a different era i mean you know what i shouldn't even say a different era i'm i'm sure this still happens today unless it's two women kissing we do live in a very strange hypocritical i mean if listeners don't realize this there is hypocrisy whoa and problematic issues with society less, today. less hypocrisy and more hypocrisy is what i say <laughs> um the fellow murray had Honestly, oh, I know why you like him because well, he got famous for singing a song. Go ahead. No, I actually wasn't. I don't know what you're talking about, actually, but you can tell me about this. But oh, I was going to say this is going to let people know way more about me than anyone cares to admit. But Murray Head in this film is like exactly my type. <laughs> so it's <was> like, <laughs> whoa. So, you're watching. You're like, I want to be uh, taken 
for granted like that. I would be Glenda or Peter in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, why not? Uh, He's, I mean, uh, we'll talk about whether he's good in this role, but he's both an actor and a singer. And he got apparently most famous for his rendition of Superstar from Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh. For Andrew Lloyd Webber's original. He must be in the original uh, production then. Yeah, he probably went. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, so I, I just assumed that you know that that's, given you that's big... so fascinating because I've been trying. I could have just looked this up and didn't. But it's like, why does Murray Head sound so familiar? Why does that name sound so familiar? And this is why. But my it's job not is not to research the actors, Dave. That's your job, so I don't ever do it. Job, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, this is written by Penelope Gilliatt uh, with an uncredited rewrite by David Sherwin and John Schlesinger, and it's directed by John Schlesinger. So, uh, the, so the idea of this movie begins like somewhere around 1966 and John Schlesinger at that time is filming the adaptation of Far From the Madding Crowd. Uh, and at the time he was also having an affair with actor John Steiner, who I have to be totally upfront, do not know who that is. Looked him up, no recognition whatsoever, but Nothing. he's having an affair with this man. And although it ended relatively happily, uh, he thought that a story about a bisexual man bouncing between a man and a woman would make for great drama. So he enlists the help of Penelope Gilliatt, and she had recently published a novel called A State of Change. That would have made a better title for this movie. So that novel included a love triangle, but in this case was between a female Polish immigrant and two English men. They thought, hey, she's kind of written about this a little bit. This is my idea. Let's see if we can make this a match. She goes to write the script. John Schlesinger in that interim, goes to his next directing project, which just so happens to be Midnight Cowboy. Notable for two different reasons. One, it features the frank depiction of male sex workers. Uh, And two, because of the rating system being in flux, it's the only X-rated film to win Best Picture. And it also won John Schlesinger a Best Directing Oscar. So he, I should also say, it was also super popular. It was the third highest grossing movie in the US in the year 1969. So Schlesinger is coming off of that success and basically has a blank check, right? He's got the super successful movie, critically and commercially successful, comes back to Penelope Gilliatt, who, and I don't know why, but apparently they just did not have a good working relationship. I don't know the exact reasons behind that, but they don't. She, by the way, also has kind of a fascinating life, intersecting with a lot of notable Hollywood stars and possibly directors that we're also going to cover this season. But like Peter Bogdanovich that we talked about, she started as a film critic and theater critic, and she actually alternated with Pauline Kael, writing columns for The New Yorker. Her career, however, would end in disgrace because of a plagiarism scandal that she was a part of. But, I, but when we talk about Pauline Kael's uh, perception of this movie, uh, just remember that she might be biased. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, even though she is the credited writer, John Schlesinger and David Sherwin, um, who was another screenwriter, did what seems to be a complete rewrite. That's according to them, though. So I don't know. I would take that for what it's worth. So while her first draft only took a couple of weeks, it was developed for almost five years, because as you might assume, the subject matter did not excite any studio executives. Dave, I'm so sorry I'm about to do this. This is Kyle getting back up on a stupid soapbox. But I need I need to state this. Here's here's your virtual bullhorn. I know. It's called a podcast. That's the only reason why I have this. Um, <laughs> here's why society is complete fucking bullshit, Dave. <laughs> so, You've been hanging out with me too long. All right, I'm ready. Let's do this. This movie is made in the UK, right? Comes out in 1971 in the UK. In 1967, there was legislation that reduced the penalty of imprisonment for anal sex. This is often cited as being when the UK like stopped making it a crime to be gay. 100% untrue. I want to be very clear. That is not true. What they did is they just lessened the prison sentence, but the prison sentence was still there. <laughs> they also made it so that the consent age for two men to have sex was 21, but also remember it was illegal for them to have sex anyways, but that's, what it's, that's what's on the books. Compared to 16 if you were just a man and a woman. So legislators legislators would continue to use ancient laws to enforce anti-gay measures. You could still be denied employment. You could be jailed for showing affection in public or by simply going to the wrong bar. Uh, And do not get me started on the gay panic brought on in the 80s by Miss Margaret Thatcher herself and the age-related deaths that would pile up because of her 
and Reagan's uh, commitment to killing as many gay people as they possibly could. That's me editorializing, but that's basically what's going on. <laughs> that's history. Look it up. Um, so it wasn't until 2003 that having gay sex wasn't specifically a crime in most of the UK. And because there was still some anti-gay legislation in Scotland and Northern Ireland, the whole of the UK can't really be said to be to have had no anti-gay legislation until 2013. So this is recent history. This is recent history. Uh, how about the US? I'm sure that you're asking, Dave. Not fucking much better. So the damn sodomites were something that early Americans are really scared of for some reason. And much like the UK, there was different laws that were made and repealed and fought over. There's two landmark Supreme Court cases. One, uh, sorry, the first was a huge setback, actually, for gay rights. But it happened in 1986, where the court decided to uphold a Georgia law that prohibited anal sex. And I should point out, too, that this technically makes it illegal for a man and a woman to have anal sex, but it just... I was just going to ask about but, porn. Yeah, but, but let's keep going. But it just yeah. wasn't used against them. It was used against uh, gay people. So the case was Bowers v. Hardwick, and even though the people charged were in their own home and the privacy of their own bedroom, they still got arrested. And it went to the Supreme Court, and they ruled at that time that they could be charged, and thus it made it federally a crime for gay men to have sex. So it wasn't until Lawrence v. Texas, where a similar case was brought before the court, this time the court ruled that adults should have the ability to conduct sexual intercourse how they wanted, and the court didn't need to legislate the bedroom. Regardless, this struck down Texas's sodomy laws, and eventually it was federally legal for gay men to have sex without fear for being arrested for it. So again, 2003, pretty recent. That's not even getting into gay marriage that wasn't made legal until much, much later. So Still not legal everywhere. Yep. So, so I appreciate the fact that I'm not really talking about the movie, but I think it's so important to realize that the world was so vastly different in 1971. So people wonder now why gay, lesbian, trans, and any other person within the LGBTQI plus spectrum, why they like need to flaunt their sexuality. It's because of this. Like being forced to hide for so long that we're not even two decades from when it was illegal to have sex with the person that you love. There are legislations happening mere days before we record this. Like I'm not, not even a week that specifically target trans people and their ability to live their lives. These are fights that are still happening. And I cannot even begin to tell you why. So in Canada, back in 1967, Pierre Trudeau, the then prime minister, and not that I'm like this huge Trudeau fan, but in this case, he's right. He said, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. I would further that in a 2021 context and say that there's no place for the state in the pants of the nation. That's me getting off my soapbox. I apologize. But this, just to put into context, that's why this kiss in this movie is kind of somewhat revolutionary. The fact that what they were doing was illegal in the UK at that time. We brought it up a little bit in Death in Venice too. I, I know that that film itself is so offensive for its other twist right. uh, and direction. But actually, I brought up in the write-up the, the hypocrisy of that. But yeah, Dirk Borgard wasn't allowed to admit that he had a, like a lifelong partner yeah. for fear of going to jail. It, that's a weird place to exist in. And like talking about the historical fear of, I mean, the Abrahamic religions called it sodomy, but... You know, I, I'd read, uh, and this is why I've always hated classical philosophy, but you brought up uh, Socrates, but Plato, uh, Plato, Plato, fuck him. Plato. He's, you know, other than this formalism and, and just how, I mean, I know it was 2,000 years ago, but, or no, 4,000 now? It doesn't matter. He was, uh, he was also saying that men shouldn't be kissing men, but he was an advocate for boys living with men in the academy. Right. exactly. Uh, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, there's, there's a lot of problems there's a lot of uh, what, what, what's your hate. favorite word there dave hypocrisy hypocrisy is happening <laughs> all over the place the one interesting thing i think about canada i mean trudeau's trudeau got it right but uh, isn't it the first province to uh get woke was quebec of all places yeah, quebec has been at the forefront but that's also because they like hate organized religion in quebec quite quite severely so so more power to you even though apparently Tabernacle. alberta hates you that's a apparently swear they word don't in say that in France. Yeah, it's yeah a, it's apparently a, it's that's a, a Quebecois thing. I remember learning that in high school. I use that word a lot. Just yeah. to finish this off too, this did have four Academy Award nominations, Best Screenplay, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Actor. Uh, it did not win any. So 
it went home with the old goose egg. Apparently, that's still controversial. And th- having watched this, and you know, I'm a big Gene Hackman fan. Yeah. Uh, this is a snub because <laughs> as much as Popeye Doyle is like, you know, kind of cool. Right. I mean, he's Gene Hackman in that movie. <laughs> Whereas, sure, sure. Right? We've got- Yeah, Peter uh, Finch does actor. a great job. Uh, yeah. In a way, like, yes, there's a lot of like closeted gay people in Hollywood at this time. It still is surprising to me that this movie got the best director nod. Um, I could see them going for the acting just to say like, yeah, sure. like the acting is good in it. But they, like, normally Best Directors also get a Best Picture nomination. So, it was close, probably, to get a Best Picture nomination as well. So, pretty interesting. The Academy was actually at the forefront of something for once. Yeah. Too much controversy. Mm -hmm. The real controversy is why you think you should be wearing the hat. So, I guess to start this off here, you kind of um, foreshadowed it a bit, but... My question is, like, what are we supposed to make of these relationships? Like, I guess, what do you make of these relationships? It was too convoluted. It took me a long time to even understand who these people were. Mm. Um, I, I was very distracted from, speaking of directing, I was very distracted with the uh, introduction, almost like Andromeda strain of this technology. Like, they were doing these zoom-ins to, like, the wiring to get to the messaging board. And I was like, is right. this going to become a science fiction film? Is there going to be, like, a tense crime drama? <laughs> That's what drama? you had to do back then, though. You had to call this call-in service and then they would connect no. you to the person. When you watch films from the 30s, it's just the call and the operator. I don't need to do the right. David Fincher uh, zoom-in to the wiring. It looks like, and I think in the end it is, three upper-class British uh, adults. It's hard to age them, but uh, having read the synopsis, yeah, they're supposed to be middle-aged. And you're kind of thrown into these weird social situations that I I, I was very lost. Uh, I couldn't get my feet on the ground with well, what yeah. story they were trying to tell. See, this yeah. is the thing about us possibly having watching this at different times because yeah right after the viewing i had the exact same thing and then mulling it over a lot like i think what i keep coming back to is that we have we have the murray head character who is pretty aloof like he's like he's not committing to one thing maybe he's going to move to america maybe he's going over here so i i could say too that this is maybe bad bisexual representation because that's kind of the shorthand a lot of people will talk about bisexuals in but as far as his character goes, he does seem to be pretty non-committal, pretty blasé about the whole thing. So, but he's the center pin between uh, Glenda Jackson and Peter Finch, and I think they're looking for two different things. I think Glenda Jackson is yes looking for something. She's recently divorced. She's now with a much younger man, and I think she's trying to figure out who she is. But I also think Peter Finch is trying to figure out who he is as well. Like he's this older guy. That is a pretty common relationship back then in the 70s of a younger man and an older man because there just wasn't a lot of spots for gay people to go and date other people. And so that felt realistic to me. But even he mentions at the end, it's like, I don't think I really truly love him, but I miss the idea of him. Like he liked the idea of having a boyfriend and, and having something long term, but I don't think it's going to be this person in particular. And so when you start to kind of roll that back and forth, this does become this interesting play where in a normal film, quote unquote, a normal film, you would think that the Peter Finch character and the Glenda Jackson character would be angry at each other or be like antagonists to one another. And they really aren't. They're like, okay, yeah, we know about the other person. We know you're going back and forth. This isn't anything, quote unquote, serious. Um, and I think by the end, it's like, they're, they're like, this is the start of them trying to figure out who they actually are. I don't know. Does that, any of that track for you? Yeah, a little bit. I, I th- you know what I got? So the confusing part of that for me in the first watching without doing any of this research or talking to you, you know, when they meet, I, I mean, is the family she's sitting for her sister? I, that relationship yeah, is very uh, yeah, obscure. I think it's her sister, I think. Because then she turns out knows Peter Finch's character and they've actually interacted with each other and he's at her, her friend or sister's house dining with them. Like, right. I almost got the sense that maybe this is her ex-husband and that this is uh, another twist, except they just throw that all away. Right. And I also had this kind of funny thought while you're talking that the so-called rewrite might have been that last one minute scene. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. looking and he's like, I don't know if we're getting clear in this. Comparing this, learning that uh, Schlesinger created Midnight Cowboy, it gave it a little bit of a, 
a bump for me because I think part of this is this graceful attempt to normalize homosexual relationships. That I agree 100%. So yeah. So this tone is is a is a romance and a drama and a little bit of a tragedy, but it's not about perversion and it's not about uh, beguilement. There's a tension when the police officers go, they're potentially going to arrest them. So they do nod to the fact that there's a lot of problems, but I mean, he's not openly gay, but Peter Finch has all these bohemian friends and everybody's just kind of like in mixers and you got these kids smoking pod and everybody just seems to know what everybody else's business is. There are some Very small town like, living, you might say. Well, I was already in it because they didn't enter a small town right, at right. all. So, I, I was, uh, it, it kept me wrapped. Um, and they do a couple of these treaties like, uh, what is it? Peter Finch's parents at the bar, bar mitzvah talking about him needing to get married and then is it Glenna Jackson's uh, sitting down? Like, I didn't even know she was rich. She looked like a hoarder. And then it turns out she's from wealth. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, in Britain, the hot water is not potable. And she takes this dirty shit cup, pours like coffee grounds, takes the hot water directly from the tap, rinses her mouth with it. I, I don't know. It's gross. But it turns out she comes from uh, wealth. And that little, they do that same thing. This is why, yeah, they didn't need the last one minute. She has that talk with her mother about... You know, my, our father's such a dick. Why haven't you left? And she's like, I did try to leave him, but you have to make relationships work. I thought that was a yeah. a very interesting dialogue that, I, you know, kind of brought me back in the film. And I was like, yeah, like we should talk about this. This Your daughter, like this character is suffering because she's attached to, um, he's, yeah. Well, what, what is yeah. he? He's well, just a Yeah. And I, th I, I, I want to get, I, I want to get to that. I want to get back to that again. But I don't want to blow past that thing that the mother does say. You, of course, have been in a very long-term relationship. I have never been in a relationship that's lasted longer than six weeks. So you're probably going to be much more uh, able to answer the question or give advice. Like, relationships are not all, like, rainbows and lollipops and, like, walks in the sun. Like, it does take work, right? Like, if it's a relationship you care about, like, you do have to work at it. Yeah, this has always been my... Uh hate for American rom-coms, which is, and most romantic novels, is the projection that uh, love or relationships has anything to do with uh, sex or pleasure. <laughs> and there's often this end goal that as soon as you hold your true love's hand or you get your true love's kiss, that the next 80 years of your life are fucking glorious. And that is not mm -hmm. how human beings work. I mean, never mind romantic relationships. Look at families or friendships. Like there's a contextual evolution. There's everything's got to keep changing. So who Helen and I were 21 years ago, we were not the same people now. And the things that we have uh, gone through and had to experience together and apart uh, requires a lot of, I'm mean, the catch corporate word is pivoting. You got to keep an idea of what your values are and those values keep changing. And if the values stay aligned somehow, then it seems to work itself out. It's it's work. It's not it's not a storyline. I and mean, we see this in this film mm -hmm. that um the two the two older characters wish for romance. The, the in between yeah. guy doesn't give a fuck. No, either like way. he's ready to walk and, out at the first sign of trouble with Peter Friends and bounces back to Glenna Jackson. And like when yeah, she becomes like quote unquote pleasure. too much, yeah. he goes back to Peter. Like he just bounces back and forth for that pleasure seeking, right? And I think it is important that he is a younger man. Like he's in, I think supposedly in his like early to mid twenties, they're a little bit older than that. Everybody looked older in the seventies. I know. Too much smoking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, did you, did you see who the, the, the cameo of the young kid who's running down the street was? No. So there's a, like a very small moment of that, like punk kid who's like scratching cars with the glass yeah, bottle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that is, um, it's Daniel Day-Lewis. It's a young Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. Uncredited. No worked for a day on this film. It is in the final wow. cut of it. So yeah, it's Daniel Day-Lewis. And he was angry there too. Yeah. He was always meant to be uh, a great asshole character actor. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, do you think we're rooting for anyone in this? I, I think that's the other thing that's hard for me to sink into with these sort of uh, intellectual dramas is it's hard. I They do such a great job showing us different layers of all the characters with the exception of um the the pivot mm -hmm. what do we, i can't remember i was going to say anthony head but that's that's another actor murray head uh, it's murray, murray head. head uh murray head's character is probably the most plastic intentionally yeah. so because that character is not supposed to have a lot of dimensionality but the more we learn about each of these uh players the less i identify with them and i think 
there's an aspect where it's British culture. These are a higher class society members. Sure. There's a world in which, the, you know, doormen and, you know, these weird telephone message servers. So it's hard to kind of empathize really. Um, and as you brought up, a lot of these things, you know, when I watch romance films, I sometimes just think like, just fucking get out of your heads, people. Right. Like, this is not going to work. Maybe Dave should start a dating advice podcast. This is the thing about wanting to now do a, a rewatch of this movie. I think what's interesting is that through this, you know, Peter Finch gets a better connection to his Jewish faith. It feels like Lena Jackson gets a better connection to her mother and like what maybe is truly important to her. And so I think that there's the growth on their ends. We're seeing the growth of the two people that the person is pivoting between. And like that's the career or that's the trajectory of of this film. So I, I'd like to go back to it, knowing how it ends up, like like really keen in on that. And then understanding that like this Murray Head character is going to be like going to America and figuring something out. And he'll become the Peter Finch character in 30 years, right? Probably Searching not. for something yeah. that that he can't find. He ain't no doctor. I also thought it was interesting that uh, the doctor character is like, he's an expert surgeon and an, an anesthesiologist, right. a pharmacist, a psychologist. He's like- Everything. He, he can tell what cancer is by touching a person's stomach. Well, was, I mean, Dave, when you get a degree in science, you get it in all science. So <laughs> if, if movies have taught me anything or if comic books have taught me anything, when you're a scientist, you know all science. You get it. Yeah. Capital S-C-I. Mm-hmm. This final quote that we keep referring to, I want to read it out to you, okay? Okay. So it gets to Peter Finch. He's sitting there in his chair. Is he playing something? I can't remember. Anyways, he's sitting there in his chair. Yeah, just looking dejected. This is what he says. When you're at school and you want to quit, people say, you're going to hate it out in the world. Well, I didn't believe them, and I was right. When I was a kid, I couldn't wait to grow up. And they said, childhood is the best time of your life. Well, it wasn't. And now I want his company. And they say, what's half a loaf? You're well shot of him. And I say, I know that, but I miss him. That's all. And they say, he never made you happy. And I say, but I am happy, apart from missing him. You might throw me a pill or two for my cough. All my life, I've been looking for somebody courageous, resourceful. He's not it, but something. We were something. I only came about my cough. What does that mean? <laughs> I have no idea. I, I will give uh, I will give Peter Finch credit because when he read it, he commits to it. it sound a lot better. Yeah. Well, he- <laughs> I, well, well, I mean, I know. Like when he says, it's "Like this means something." Like this is, yeah. this is the, but then he's it's like he's making a mountain out of mashed potatoes. Uh, <laughs> this is not Close Encounters, but uh, uh, well, yeah. I guess the Close Encounters of some kind. But um, uh. It's really it's that, nonsense. Well, no, yeah, it's, it's la- that last line that keeps throwing me off. I actually had to rewind the movie four times to understand <laughs> what he was saying because I was like, I don't, I don't understand. I only came about my cough, but he didn't. Unless he's unless he's quoting unless he's quoting what the young person is saying because he does have a cough. Like so, I, that is that part confuses me. I like the first bit honestly like when you're school and people say quit and like when they say childhood sure. is the best like yeah cool 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 and then it gets to this part <laughs> and i'm like i don't know what you're trying to tell me i literally don't yeah. know what he's trying to tell me and maybe i'm just stupid and i don't and i'm just not understanding no, I, it but i don't understand what he's trying to say i was actually paying a lot more attention when you were reading it and by the end i was like nope loaf you lost me a loaf <laughs> I, I don't even understand where bread came into this I, um, it's probably like a Britishism that we're not picking up on is what i'm guessing yeah, maybe a colloquialism, a collo- a colloquial, yeah, a colonialism. What's half a loaf? What's, Anyways, yeah, yeah, what's some money? Or whatever, probably is what it means. <laughs> I don't know. I and I. This is why I was jokingly think this is maybe the add-on to the script because I I feel like that last bit is a grab at trying to make some kind of social point so that the average viewer doesn't miss. Like, why does he get a soliloquy and Glenda Jackson right, doesn't? Right. Right, it's such a weird. I don't. It's not even a male gaze thing. It's not even like a patriarch. It's just a weird decision that Peter Finch's character is more important, and this is really a movie about him, when it wasn't, in my opinion. I I was actually more drawn to Glenda Jackson's right. character yeah. because she seems to struggle the most. 
You know, she lives in squalor. She's from money. She can't handle when this guy leaves. She can't even handle it when he's there. You know, it's, she's never happy. And it's fascinating to watch that little thing where she has the, the quote unquote affair with the weird old yeah. dude in her office. But you can, I love how you can see her face, how she gets schemy when uh, young boy shows up at her apartment. She's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get you. We'll see if you get jealous. And he's like, man, I don't give a fuck. And you're like, ah, oh, there we go. Poor woman. There we go. <laughs> it's over. You um, deserve better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. So if I'm feeling anything, it might be for her, but she's pretty awful too. The sequence with her house sitting, I mean, we should talk about that too. Well, I yeah. could not, I could not understand what was going on. Well, Five kids, bohemian life, like animals. Well, yeah, the bohemian life creepy is, kid. is like, I'll never understand what it's like to grow up like that, I suppose, because it's so outside my wheelhouse. Like, I get it from her and like, she's trying to make house. She's trying to convince him to be like her partner. And like, wouldn't it be great if we moved in together sort of thing? She's really trying to make this thing happen. But like partway through, we know it ain't going to happen. <laughs> like, he's off visiting Peter Finch after day one. So but it's such a weird situation to be in in the first place, because not only is she miserable being that she doesn't want to go clearly. That is a very weird family. Oh, yeah. Like, w why is it written that way? You know, it, that cannot have been normal for that era, too. You've got, you know, you got, for some reason, they threw in a token black professor. Does he live with them? It, it, I don't know. That was very weird. The parents are off to some, I don't know, commune or speaking event. And you got five kids, the daughter who's super creepy, something out of a horror movie because she speaks like a 40-year-old and takes care of all the other kids. All the little kids are monsters. Kills her They're dog, like though. It's her fault that that dog gets killed. A dog dies, yeah. They're sitting there serving breakfast in bed, yeah. smoking but it, pot also, and drinking Also, one of those things where I'm pretty sure that's a dead dog that they have on film, too. <laughs> that, yeah, that looked... When they lift up the carcass, that was a dead... Uh, yeah. That was an actual dead animal. Yeah. Where you get an exact replica <laughs> of an alive dog. Yeah. There, we had to ask some questions. About how animals were used. We, were, we revived him though on set, so it's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we just blew carbon monoxide in his face until he passed out, but he's fine. He's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, that's the thing. Get me off kilter. And I do remember, I texted you, I thought when that wrapped, that that was the end of the film. Yeah. You know, they had put so much energy into showing how complex their relationships were. And then I thought the girl was going to die in that action right. scene, yeah, the yeah. way they built yeah. that up. And then they do that sort of psychological horror movie thing where uh, everybody's imagining worst case scenarios and you're seeing a dead girl and you're seeing her draw blood on a body. And it just kept me wondering what the hell it was all for. It's a weird movie. I can't say I enjoyed watching it, <laughs> but uh, I didn't turn it off. So, Yeah, it, it definitely is. It, it, it does have its weird spots. And I wonder if that's part of the, again, part of the point where it's trying to keep you as off kilter as it possibly can. Again, this is one of those reasons why I want to kind of rewatch it and to see what I can see. Uh, let's talk about some of the critics of the time, though. These are uh, these are contemporary critics, what they thought. Of course, we're sticking with Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael. Both of them liked it. Ebert more so. He gave it four out of four stars. Wow. And so Ebert says, or Ebert wrote, the glory of Sunday Bloody Sunday is supposed to be the intelligent, sophisticated, civilized way in which these two people gracefully accept the loss of a love they had shared. Well, they are graceful as hell about it, and there is a positive glut of being philosophical about the inevitable. But that doesn't make me feel better for them, or about them, the way it was supposed to. I felt pity for them. I insist that they would not have been so bloody civilized if either one had felt really deeply about the boy. The fact that they were willing to share him is perhaps a clue. They shared him not because they were willing to settle for half, but because they were afraid to try for all. The three-sided arrangement was, in part, a guarantee that no one would get in so deep that being civilized wouldn't be protection enough against hurt. I think Sunday Bloody Sunday is a masterpiece, but I don't think it's about what everybody else seems to think it is about. This is not a movie about the loss of love, but about its absence. I don't know what you have to say about that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know what I, you know what I think. Uh, One thumb down on Ebert's review. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Ebert's reading a lot. I mean, he's reflecting a lot of something going on in his own life, interpreting this film that way. It's not necessarily that he's wrong in reflection. So he's either a genius, or he read this in a very personalized way. But that there's there's so many uh, interpretive decisions there 
that are fascinating to reflect on. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I always thought maybe film critics watch these, you know, four times before they write something down. So it's possible that, you know, on a rewatch, like you're talking about, and, and as we speak about this, we kind of evolve, mm -hmm. like on good intellectually written films, whether they turn out into watchable films or not, there's so much there that you can talk about. But that is a very, a masterpiece is a, that's a big word. It is, yeah. There are a lot of letters in that word. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm there yet. I, I do actually really like his last line. I think that's where I agree with him the most that, yeah, I, I don't see this as a, a film about love or achieving love or even losing love. It's like no one really loves each other in this movie. It's a, it's a matter of convenience for them. And they're really trying to figure out what they actually truly want. Like that is, I think, true. I've been talking a lot with Helen because she has, you know, we've met a lot of younger people and, and sadly hearing that you haven't had a relationship last longer than, what was it? Six, six weeks. days? No, six, six weeks. Uh, I've been talking about how A, Helen and I are so out of touch and B, how the internet has changed dating negatively, yeah. but listening to you and watching this film, it has nothing to do with the internet at all, no. does it? No. It's just human nature. It's just human nature. Um, not a whole lot of options up here in space, let me tell you, Dave. Um, not a lot of options. I'll try my best, but nah. I told you earlier, I can't fold that way. Yeah. So, uh, Paul and Kale said this. Now, remember, they were colleagues at The New Yorker. So, it's an unusual film, perhaps a classic, perhaps a classic. The film is a curious sort of plea on behalf of human frailty. It asks for sympathy for the non-heroes of life who make the best deal they can. People can receive solace from it. It's the most sophisticated weeper ever made. There's perhaps a little too much sensibility. Compassion is featured. People can manage on very little, the doctor says to relatives of an incapacitated patient. Too late to start again, a sad heavy-lidded woman who looks like Virginia Woolf says of her miserable marriage. Schlesinger has a gift for pacing and the energy to bring all the elements of a movie together, but he uses his techniques so that it's just about impossible for you to have any reaction that he hasn't decreed you should. The film is full of planted insights. You can practically count the watts in the illuminations. That's what she says. I don't know if you have anything to retort to that. Well, we've already established that she's a very angry woman. I am... Um... <laughs> okay. I, I, yeah, I agree that it's, it's, it's perhaps a classic, Dave. It's perhaps a classic. <laughs> it's it's fun. She's, yeah, I mean, her and Ebert are so, so much more educated mm -hmm. than we are. Uh, and they use language in such a great intellectual way, at least for the 70s. But, but did they do 69 uh, jokes, uh, Dave? <laughs> uh, I don't think they did. Actually, oh, we got to open up that book. Maybe they did. Maybe we'll have to did. look at their reviews from 1969. Might have been rife with them. All um, sexual innuendos through the entire thing, yeah. It, you know, so the the thing that caught my ear is uh, the idea of pacing in the 1971s. Mm -hmm. Ew. Uh, it's a fascinating thing to call Schlesinger a master of pacing when I felt that this thing wasn't going anywhere right, for right. vast swaths It is a time. very slow moving movie, for sure. Yeah. And then this idea that these are planted, you know, I often forget that movies of this nature, presumably the writer and the director are intentionally putting scenes in that are either going to foreshadow, be a metaphor for, or relate to some central philosophical theme. And I'm never actually looking for that. And most of the time when I watch a movie, I just, you know, I, I want to be entertained, uh, be it, you know, by exploding cars or like some discussion. But what I hear when she writes that is that it's over nuanced, mm. it's overly intentional, and it gets lost in itself, which I think is true. So when I think back and we discuss it, I can see that. And I'm like, oh yeah, he did have a discussion, which I thought was totally random for this patient to die in front of right. his parent or her parents. But yeah, that could be an intentional metaphor of the relationship that he's having with his uh, you know, lover. But that's not what I get in the sitting in front of the film. That's what I get in a coffee shop discussion right. with you about the film after. And this is the problem 1971. We have a lot more fun talking about Sweetback than enjoying it. <laughs> right. I felt the same way with this. We learn about uh, gay rights and sort of discrimination and oppression. We learn about uh, this, these writers and, and the intent of this stuff, but I didn't really enjoy watching this film at all. So the idea of a classic masterpiece um, is a little frustrating to hear because I, 
I know I don't need to watch this movie again. You, you heard it here first, folks. Dave wants more exploring cars in more films. Actually, that's not the first time you've heard that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think this goes back to something that we keep coming back to somewhat is like representation in film and how, I mean, the 70s are probably not going to be. I'm going to go on a limb here, Dave, and say you're probably not great for Asian representation uh, and probably not great for gay representation either. Uh, and so it was nice for me to see like, oh, OK, like, again, my uh, belief of what a 70s film that featured gay characters would, could be like or would be like was really upended in this film. So I was actually kind of surprised <laughs> throughout the majority of this runtime. I think I will revisit this at some point in the future. Am I rushing out to go and view it again? No. Uh, but I think I will come back to this and just, know, I'm curious to see if my interpretation is lessened or increased the next time I see it. I've got five days left on this uh, library oh, rental. Good. So yeah. <laughs> um, before they close down yeah. everything else. Well, just in reflection, I read this somewhere, you know, again, if you reflect on Midnight Cowboy, maybe that's popular because it just depicts their classic stereotype of uh, male sexuality as a perversion, mm -hmm. right? You automatically have John Voight as a prostitute. So people are like, yeah, that's how, that's how gay people are, you know, <laughs> doing some stupid shit and actually going to watch that movie. That is how everyone in 1969 sounded too, by the way. And actually, that's how people in America still, no. Okay. Uh, so I think that putting up a mainstream movie where everybody's casual about it is going to be difficult, which we discussed. And it has a beauty to it. It is nice to watch, you know, like the love scenes are all tender and they're mm -hmm. shot with beauty. There's nothing not only pornographic, but violent about any of their interactions, you know, and, um, and classic 71 that you get boobs, you get flaccid right. penis, you yeah. get the whole show. It's great. Um, <laughs> but, uh, that was not refreshing, but it was nice to watch a film from 71 that uh, I, uh, wasn't overtly yeah. violent in its theme. I mm -hmm. want to make a t-shirt that says, I love flaccid penis, David Young. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. The, uh, the Actual quote. Yeah. Yeah. We're done here. The machine has said we do have to wrap this up. So I guess we should get to that question that we always ask. Does this hold up? And is it still culturally relevant? What do you think, Dave? Culturally relevant? I think so. Yeah. I think it's hard enough even today to watch just a simple film about people. Never mind homosexuality or queer, whatever. It's like just a simple film about people doing stuff. But I think the flip side is the reason for that is it's not that. It's like watching documentaries. Sometimes it's not that compelling. But visually, this movie is so dated. Like, I have a lot of problems with some of the, you know, the way that it's shot. You know, again, the rotary phones and watching the lines. I don't know why there's an operator. I thought she was going to play a bigger role. Um, She's a bit of comic relief, I think, or supposed to be, but... Because she can roll her eyes. I mean, apparently she's a, quite an accomplished actress, but um, wasted, I think, in that writing of that scene, which could have all been cut away. I don't know if this is necessarily watchable anymore as a film. Uh, but I think conceptually it's important if, if for nothing else, for people to realize you could still go to jail for loving another man in 1971, mm -hmm. which is uh, a reflection of why our society is failing. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I agree with you in this aspect in that I do think that it's culturally relevant. I waver as far as it holds up. We we continually go back to this, but I think for like cinephile nerds, sure, sure, you're probably going to be able to do that. For the wider audience, I, I have to think probably not. One thing I was going to say, because we're probably going to be getting into a bunch of movies that have either been remade, have had uh, spun a bunch of sequels or redos. I actually do think this movie could be remade today and pretty easily. Yes. Um, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Again, with different yeah you know, filming standards or whatever it happens to be but you wouldn't have to change much about this movie and i think you could still say like to set in modern day and the same type of thing that they're struggling with i'm just trying to think about whether it's already essentially been remade and i'm sure it has in its concept it yeah. might be like a woman with two men or something like that but <laughs> yeah it's hard to say at this point what would be permissible but yeah love triangles are a classic uh literary device mm -hmm. So, and pretty much every single episode of Three's Company. So, uh, so that's what Dave and Please I. More bell bombs, yeah. <laughs> so that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. 
If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash kdvstm. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. All right, so let's get to rating this movie. Dave, uh, what would you give it out of five? I'm having a debate in my head right now. You know, I think as a film experience, I'm going to go with the two. I think that I, I think it's middling the way it's shot. And like everything we've talked about, conceptually, there's so much meat underneath, but I don't like the way it's dressed. It wasn't basted enough for me. So you have to become a master baster first, Dave. (laughs) Um, So... I'm giving it higher than a two. Uh, I'm giving it a 3.5, uh, which is kind of my middling range sometimes, where it's like, I like parts of it. I didn't like parts of it. really hated that last minute uh, quite a bit. But there was still enough that kind of drew me in throughout the film. Um, but it's definitely not on like the masterpiece level that we heard Eber talk about or even like a maybe classic of Pauline Kael. So, but maybe maybe I'll learn to love this movie more. We can all agree that this podcast is an almost classic. So, Dave, that does mean that Sunday Bloody Sunday, then, is going to enter our list at the new number five position. I am not giving these movies very good scores. No, but Dave, you are now above a two for an average rating. Yes. So that's, so that's nice to see. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we should find out what we're watching next week. Let's going to push this button here. Oh, Dave, look at this. We've had so many physically training movies, like really like dramatic stuff. We get to take a, a week off, I guess, and have some fun. We're going on a trip to a chocolate factory. Willy Wonka's, in fact. So Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I don't think there's a single person that doesn't like that movie, Dave. I can't think of a single person who wouldn't love Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I think we need to check the expiry date on that wrapper. Okay. I, uh, All right. We'll find out <laughs> next episode. <laughs> I think your average rating is going to go down. <laughs> uh, all right. I don't know. How do you want to end this? <laughs> <laughs> we saw one gene. I can't wait to meet another. Or do, wait. What are we ending? Just like wrapping up the episode. We, we usually have a button, a joke of something. Uh, um, the, whole, the whole podcast is a joke. Just wait until I make you watch Million Dollar Duck.